All right, so as I believe Cam mentioned, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Um, and Advent is, without a doubt, my favorite time of the year specifically. Not even Christmas, Advent specifically. Um, and so I'm just really excited to be here to inaugurate the start of this season with you guys. So we are going to start by lighting the candle. As we begin the season of anticipation known as Advent, We'll join Christians all over the world in lighting a candle each week to remind us of the first coming of Jesus, the light of the world, 2,000 years ago, and the second coming of Jesus that we still wait for. We light the first candle of hope, and we're gonna have a call and response. You'll see your part on the screen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahatz, and Ahatz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atsor, and Atsor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the, the father of Eliatzar, and Eliatzar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, just what kind of story are we living in? This is a crucial question for every person to answer because how you answer that question shapes what you believe about countless things. And what you believe about countless things shapes what you do and what you do shapes ultimately what you become. This is true for every person as it relates to their individual story. So for you, just as one person living in this crazy world, where do you come from? You know, were you wanted and loved by your parents? Are you loved by anyone right now? 
Is the shape of your story primarily a tragedy, a comedy, or something else? What do you want? Is what you want good for you? And how do you know? Do you believe what has happened in the past determines what will happen in the future? Is the prospect of another day one full of excitement and possibility or dread and anxiety or something else? But this is also true for every person as it relates to their view of the big questions of life, the big picture, the meta story that make up a worldview. What kind of universe do we live in? Where did humanity come from? Is there such a thing as objective moral or ethical values? Is a human life objectively worth anything? How should we think about the immense amount of suffering and injustice in our world? Is human sensory experience reliable? Is human rationality reliable? Do people make genuine choices? What sort of end is the universe headed towards? Do any gods exist? What are it or they like? And how ought we relate to it or them? So how one answers each one of these questions, and you could go on with countless others that are important, these shape someone's worldview. And an important piece of the first question, what kind of story am I living in? So a story implies a beginning, a middle, and an end. A couple years ago, I was reading, don't ask me why, I was reading Sid Field's book on writing screenplays in which he arranged stories in Act 1, story setup, Act 2, confrontation, Act 3, resolution. Are we living in something like that? Are we living in something like that? Something orderly, something conducive to meaning making. Can we make meaning out of this world? Or like the nihilists and plenty of others would argue, are our lives fundamentally random, meaningless, valueless, storyless? Again, how you answer this question will, without, without a doubt, subtly and over time, shape exactly what you do and who you become. And the religions, you know, the religions of the world each have their answers to these questions. Secular humanism has an answer. The occult and pagan spirituality have several answers. Secular evolutionary biologists have an answer. But do any of them tell the truth? Christianity has its answer that might share similarities with some and absolute distinction from all at one point or another. And, and, and Christianity's answer is, is not an answer just as a cute thought experiment or a cozy opiate of the people kind of thing to hold on to, um, to avoid looking at the cold, hard facts of reality. Christianity has always claimed that we live in a particular story, that this story is true, and that this story actually makes the best sense of both our deepest suffering, our greatest pleasures, and our furthest longings. And the Christian tradition of observing the season of Advent gives us the key to understanding the story. So what is Advent? Advent simply means coming or arrival. And the first evidence we have of Christians, you know, sort of doing something like this, taking a season to anticipate Christmas, comes in 490 AD uh, in what is now modern France. And sort of different practices have grown up around it. Different church traditions celebrate Advent wildly differently, but it all goes back to 490 AD, best we can tell. And so there are different versions from tr different traditions, but the heart of Advent, the unified heart, is making space for the longing and the waiting upon God to put all of this mess right. 
And it involves situating ourselves between the two earth-shattering, universe-defying, dignity-bestowing events that tell us that we are, in fact, not living in a random void, but in a story. And they tell us just what kind of story that is. So what are these two events? The first, I'm sure you know this. The first is the first advent or first coming of Jesus at the first Christmas, when the Son of God incarnated himself in human flesh and began the most pivotal chapter of his great mission to rescue humanity. And that story, that story of Jesus coming culminated a long story that preceded it. But there's a second event as well. It's the second coming of Jesus, a second coming of Jesus where he is going to finally finish what he started. He's going to bring about the renewal and healing of all things for those who trust him, culminating everything that came before that, including the story of your life and my life right now. So between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus, we find our place in a grand story that God is telling. And as most of you know, it's a good story. It is a good story. And this year, for the four weeks of Advent, we're going to be looking at this story, the Christmas story, and the gospel according to Matthew, and letting it lead us each week to consider our place in that story between the amazing past event and the amazing event that is yet to come. So let's just jump right in, but first, let's pray. Father, my, my sense again is just that it, there is a, a unique risk that our familiarity and our sentimentality around Christmas could make the dramatic power and meaning of what you have done in sending your son into this world just fall flat. And we just ask for fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear, Lord, that we could encounter the the radical power of this story anew. That it would spur up our hope, would spur up our courage, spur up our faithfulness, Spur up our joy. Help us, Lord. We need you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before the first advent, people of God were waiting. They were downtrodden people with a painful history of highs and lows, with a lot of lows. And most recently, they had experienced a return from this identity-defying exile under the oppressive empire of Babylon. They came back into the land, and there was a sort of half-hearted return where they're rebuilding the city and the temple and the walls, but things were just never quite as glorious as they were before. Something was still amiss. But following that, following their subjugation from Babylon, they then (laughs) faced a series of subjugation from the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire. And so if you go through generations of experiences like that, subjugation from the world empires, um, it begins to feel like you've been waiting for a really long time, doesn't it? And waiting for what? Well, for the fulfillment of promises that go all the way back to the third page of our Bible. The first one, the promise of a child of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent that led humanity into temptation and that original act of rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. In other words, that the great enemy of God and humanity would be defeated once and for all. That's the fundamental hope they're waiting for. But also for the fulfillment of the promise of God made to Abraham and the great family of descendants through whom the whole world was to be blessed. For the fulfillment of the promises God made to David of an everlasting kingdom of goodness and flourishing that would never end. 
and also for the fulfillment of the promises that came through the prophets when they were in exile to bring final forgiveness of sin and provide new hearts that would truly desire to love God and neighbor. The people of God were waiting. But in a sense, all of humanity was waiting because all of humanity is always waiting too. Because most people of compassion, most people of sort of empathy are always waiting for some glimmer of hope that, you know, against the evils and injustices and even death itself that are abundantly clear to any who have the eyes to see. So as long into this waiting, let's use stronger language, this agonizing, longing, God, how long do we have to wait that God inspired these words, the words of a 17-verse genealogy. (laughs) We're so bored with these genealogies, aren't we? But this was not so for the ancient readers. And I think part of the reason we're bored is because, first of all, we often aren't curious about our own heritage and story, like just to begin with. How many of us can tell a story about a great-grandparent? Actually, let's see a show of hands. How many can tell a story? Okay, these are the thoughtful people among us <laughs> to which I aspire. How about a great-grandparent? Or that, is that what I just said? How, oh, sorry, great-great-grandparent. Anybody got any stories? See, one, two, and then beyond that, I'm assuming, you can you go further than that? How far back? Stories. I know the town that my family is from in Northeast England, I can tell a couple stories about that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I think in general, I think you're the exception to the rule. Like, so many of us, we're, we're you know, I think as we get older, there's a natural, like, longing to be, where do I come from? Like, what's my family story? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Especially the younger you are, it's so easy to just be uncurious. You just go, yeah, the world kind of begins and ends with me, and, you know, leave it there. So we aren't curious about our own history, so how are we going to care about a, a list of ancient names and 17 verses being in Matthew? Um, but that is a bit unlike the ancient readers who would have first encountered this text. Second, we aren't really shaped by the narrative of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, most of us. Most of us, you know, we know bits and pieces, we know some key checkpoints, but when we hear those names, we're just like, what is this? Who, what am I supposed to make of this? But to ones shaped in that book, that collection of books, this list of names reads like a story, each name taking you, hyperlinking you into dramatic events that shape this people's identity. Or third, we often get to this and we don't really believe that these are the words of God. Not really. We might think, yeah, you know, the, the word of God comes whenever it's like the dramatic stuff, whenever we're seeing Jesus like teach about something that we like or about Paul giving us this complex theology or whatever it is. But when we get to a genealogy like this, this what, what could this possibly have to teach me and to tell me? I, I cannot, I tried hard to find this quote. Maybe some of you have heard this story. But I'm going to get the details wrong. I'm going to get the book that was mentioned wrong. But there's some story. I'll just give you the, the, the general sense. It was something like this. There was a literature professor who was teaching students, you know, the great classics of, say, Western literature or whatever. And let's say they were getting to a unit on, like, the Brothers Karamazov, you know, uh, Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky, great Russian novelist, one of the greatest works, indisputably, um, of the English language. And, you know, they're going through this book. And 
So imagine it was that book, and a student raised his hand at some point. He's like, this is, like, professor, this is so boring. This is so boring. How could you possibly expect me to read this? And the professor, who has labored and shaped himself or herself to, like, understand the magnificent, beautiful complexity of a work like this, who's put in the hours to see its the impact it's made across literature over time, the way in which it has changed people's lives to call them into living by a higher standard, so on and so forth. The professor could just look at, look at the, you know, 19-year-old and say this. The Brothers Karamazov isn't boring. You're boring. <laughs> you know? And that's not to say, I, full confession here, I tried to read the Brothers Karamazov with Josh White like five years ago, and I just made it like a quarter through and put it down. I said, this is boring, Josh. Um, so I condemn myself first here. But I know, I know I'm missing out. Will I try to read it again? I'm not sure. But that's the sentiment. That's the spirit of this. We come to these genealogies, and if we think that this is kind of meaningless, just, ah, just a list of names, the problem is with us. The problem is with us. Because every name, again, isn't just a random name, but it is a relational bridge to the reader across centuries. Every name is a meaning-making story that reignites the longing that we have to see the promise of God fulfilled and the putting right of all things. So this genealogy that starts Matthew's gospel is a reminder that God has always been at work previously through real people and that we need our history to make sense of the present and the future. More specifically, we live in a story. We live in a story with a beginning and a middle and an end that's coming. But the genealogy gives us a few more things. It tells us more about the kind of story that Jesus inhabits that also tells us about the story we inhabit. So I just want to look at four pieces. We're going to be very quick on these about the four things we learn about the story. The first is this that Jesus is the son of David and Abraham, and he's the Christ. That's how this genealogy begins, and it tells us that this story, the story of these names, is the messianic story. It's the story of the Messiah. Matthew is about to tell us how Jesus came into the human story, into human flesh at the first Christmas, but first he has to situate Jesus in a story, the story of Israel. And it's not just the outskirts of Israel's story. Jesus is connected to the central artery of the thing, One of the main points of this genealogy is that Jesus is the descendant of both Abraham and David, which qualifies him to be the Christ, which is the Greek translation of Messiah, the long-promised anointed king who is going to come in fulfillment of the promises of God and put everything right. If Jesus is going to be this person, he has to be a son of Abraham, has to be a son of David. So you could think of this as Jesus' earthly resume for being the promised anointed king that would put everything right. He has to show his credentials. Here they are. Yes, he's in the line of both Abraham and David, among others. So, Jesus is the son of David and Abraham, and he's the Christ, which is what Matthew's claiming. That means the whole story of God is going to culminate in this Jesus who's coming. So this isn't just any baby that's being born, of course. This is the culminating event of human history up to the point. This is the story of stories under which you and I's stories get any meaning and significance. That's point one. Point two is this. Jesus was also the son of trouble, which is, gives us the tragic backstory, at least pieces of it. What we see in this genealogy 
through, through this particular list of names is that Jesus came into a world marred by sin and tragedy and sickness and death, and his own lineage was not protected from, from this. If you and I had the ability to sort of, you know, craft, you know, so, totally direct our history, it's very likely we would not include the types of characters that are included in the story of Jesus, in the family history of Jesus. His own family was touched by brokenness of every sort. I mean, just think about David for a second. Yes, he's the great and lofty ideal king of Israel, but he's also a man who in one particular event was not just an adulterer, but a coercer, a sexual coercer, and a murderer of a woman's innocent husband. It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. And it's interesting to note the way this genealogy doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mention, uh, doesn't just simply say, uh, mention Bathsheba, but mentions the wife of Uriah to twist the knife, the man whom David had killed. It's, it's framing the story in a way that we have to remember, oh my gosh, yeah, that's right. This was horrible what happened. Or to think about Abraham and his moment of unfaithfulness concocting a scheme to get uh, a promised child that God had promised through illegitimate means, using his slave woman to father a child. These aren't stories that we're meant to go, oh, yes, yes, that's very nice. No, we're meant to be scandalized. Go, oh, this is just ugly. This is horrific. It's the lineage of the Messiah. Among the other names, there are stories of incest, prostitution, evil kings, lies, brutality, you name it. All the stuff that makes us squirm when we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh man, I don't really know how I'm supposed to imagine God working through this stuff. It can be found in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. So what that means, the why, is that Jesus came to identify with us in all of our sin, all of our tragedy, all of our brokenness, and that of our families as well. The story of Jesus acknowledges the darkness of real life in this world, and it is unflinchingly honest. So lest you get accused of Christianity being a story that's unrealistic, and it's just about, you know, believe in nice things so that, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. No, no, no. The Messiah's story won't let us hold to that. It tells us we live in an ugly world where people commit atrocities against each other, even in the family, the earthly human family of Jesus. But the positive spin on that is that no story is too far gone if our God exists. That these horrific stories that you read about, you're like, this is a nightmare. Even into those and through those, God can bring about beautiful purposes, unimaginably beautiful purposes. No story and no person is too far gone if this God exists. That is good news, friends. So it's a tragic backstory, but not one without hope third point from this genealogy is that Jesus is the son of the excluded. And this is a dignifying story. Another thread that runs through this genealogy is the thread of God's heart for the excluded. That's a theme of the scripture from beginning to end. We should mention here that the inclusion of women in an ancient genealogy was basically unheard of. And yet, God inspired their inclusion here in this list as a way to identify their crucial role in the story of the Savior. As the Holy Spirit of God is, is inspiring a genealogy to be written, he makes sure that Matthew includes the name of these pivotal women in this story because they're not to be excluded. That was radically countercultural at the time, though it seems so obvious to us it was not at the time. The genealogy 
includes figures of splendor like David and Solomon, but also poor peasants, Gentile immigrants who would have in some ways felt like second-class citizens amongst worshiping Israel. It includes morally dubious characters. In short, it includes the excluded. And this thread of the story tells us that the story of Jesus is a dignifying one. That the God of the universe chooses freely to include and thus dignify people from among any group who would come in. The gospel we see implicitly here is for all, any and all who will receive it. There are no second-class citizens in his kingdom. And that is radically countercultural good news because it doesn't matter how inclusive you want to be. There is often in every subculture a place where people draw the line and go, no, those are just, those are the bad people for whom are hopeless. We might as well just cancel them or whatever. Like they are beyond, in, they are beyond participation in what's going on here. And it is not so with the God of the universe, we are told here. As Tim Keller once wrote, it's, this shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, they all sit down as equals through Jesus. Praise God. Praise God for this story. And there's one more point to highlight. And this one kind of hangs over and above the genealogy, which is that this is the story of the Son of God. Not just the Son of David and Abraham, not just the Son of trouble, not just the Son of the excluded, but the Son of God. It makes this the unthinkable story. The final thread that hangs over this genealogy, if not within it, is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. As one great ancient statement of faith put it, Jesus is, quote, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. Alongside his very real and very messy human history and his real humanity is a very real divinity. Again, quoting, quoting from this, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Matthew's going to argue for it over the course of his gospel, but it is this reality that ultimately makes this genealogy worth caring about. Because Jesus could be, you know, the champion of the marginalized. He can be, uh, you know, the one who acknowledges the reality of our suffering and even cares about it. He could be the son of David and the son of Abraham and have a royal lineage. But at the end of the day, if that's all he is, who cares? Who cares? Why should we care? Well, it's because of this piece. It's because... He's the Son of God. Jesus wasn't just man enough to identify with us, but he is God enough to save us. What we're reminded of in the story of Jesus is an unthinkably hopeful one, that God exists. This is the claim. Okay, like, put the Christmas trees and the Christmas lights aside. Here's what Christianity is claiming. Take it or leave it. Hate it or love it. Just don't be indifferent to it. Think it's the most beautiful truth you've ever heard or it's a children's fantasy, a fairy tale, whatever. But here's the claim that, that's being made. God exists. There is a God. He really does exist. But he's not a tyrant. He's not petulant. He's not cruel. He's not mal malicious or vindictive. He's a lover. And he's a pursuer 
And at times, in the most upside down way, I, I even like, extra, I feel like I have to qualify this because you struggle to use this language for God, but it's what the scriptures declare. At times, he's a servant of humanity. He was not content to exist apart from the people he loves, even when they betrayed him, even they rebelled against him, even when they interjected sin and evil and sickness and death and destruction into the world, he was not content to remain apart from them. So he sent his eternal son to dwell among them. He sent his son to leave the throne room of heaven to incarnate in a human body, and not just any human body, a frail one, to gestate in his mother's womb, to be laid in a manger, a feeding trough, to be born into the most humble circumstances imaginable, and then to grow up to face the full spectrum of human temptation, human struggling, uh, human pain. Human pain. All of this. Not just, you know, because it's cute or whatever makes a good, you know, you know, way to, way to sell Christmas presents or Hallmark cards or whatever this time of year, but because he loves humanity and he wants to save them. He wants to save you. He wants to save me. He does not want the distance that we have created to be final. He wants to bridge it. And he's willing to do everything necessary, including up to this great humiliation of the Son of God to see it happen. So that's the story. Again, we just have to know, it's a crazy story. It's a wild story. I'm sitting here in 2023 where we have the internet in our pockets, supercomputers in our pockets. We know more about the universe and the ga our galaxy, our solar system, physics, all this stuff than we've ever known before. And I'm saying to you, I believe that this is true. And I know that's nuts. And I think you should know that that's nuts too. If it's been like really comfortable for you for a long time, like, yeah, we're Christians, we believe this. Guys, this is crazy stuff we believe. Crazy stuff. But most of you have come to believe it somehow. We would say by the supernaturally, supernatural work of God in your life. He has made you believe this is not just true, but that I want to know and love and serve this God. I will give him my faith, my trust, my allegiance. I will follow him because he's done this for me, because this is who he is. And even when it's costly, even when it's painful, even when he asks me to deny myself and take up my cross, I think, I think, I think ultimately it will be ultimately for my good, my deepest flourishing. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. He is also the son of God, which makes this an unthinkable, radically surprising story that we find ourselves in. So, to conclude, we're still in a period of waiting. Christ has come, but things aren't all hunky-dory. We've got war-torn nations all around us, morally complex situations that are not easy to resolve. We've got children suffering. We've got famine. We've got, you, you name it, you name it. We live in a deeply broken world. Everything has not been put right yet but Christ is coming again. That's what we believe. The kingdom of God is here in some sense. He came to inaugurate it, but it's not yet here in full. It is coming in full one day. Death has been defeated. Jesus died and he rose from the, from the dead, not in some spiritual metaphor, but people touched him. He ate with them. They saw him. That's the claim that we believe. Death's been defeated, and yet death still, still stares down each and every one of us, doesn't it? 
The second coming is what will take all these tangled threads and hopes deferred of our lives and our stories, and it's going to weave them into something beautiful beyond imagination. It's going to make every time we had to say no to something, every time we suffered for the name of Christ, every time we were lost and confused and didn't know what was going on, every time we were just overwhelmed and crushed by the weight of life in a world like this one, it's going to give it meaning, significance, and beauty. So, question we started with. What kind of story are we living in? The Bible says it's one with real tragedies that really matter. Your pain matters. Death matters. Injustice matters. Sin matters. And we don't have to wave it away as frivolous or hopeless or as intellectually non-meaningful, which is sadly what, what many worldviews have to do. You can, be, you can grieve suffering, but at the end of the day, you say, well, it's not meaningful in any objective sense. That's not the case with Christianity. But it's also a worldview in which real joys and pleasures in the here and now exist because God is still in control, and he's still gifting us with these things. And it's a story with real hope, with a transformative end that will lend genuine meaning to all that came before and will mark a new beginning as we live with him in unbroken fellowship once again in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will come again, and when he does, it will mean the putting right of all things and the deepest good that you've always been afraid to hope for. But for now, in the middle, act two of this story, repent and believe. Repent from your sin, believe in him, trust him, trust that he's good. And if you've done that, then rest in this hope that you've stumbled upon and into, that he's led you toward. There's real hope, friends. We get to wait with patience for what he's gonna do next. Amen?